The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken, and in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. And who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Tyler. Well, um, a couple weeks ago was one of the greatest weeks that happens every year. Something you can learn about me, and I believe strongly. It was Shark Week. And uh, my sweet wife, Megan, has decided that if she married me, she would have to watch some of it. And uh, we watched it, I believe, firmly at what... what, uh, Tracy uh, Morgan says that live every week like it's Shark Week. And uh, it was one of my, um, you know, every year they kind of up the ante. You kind of have the same, these new faces and same faces, whatever. One of the best guys is a guy named Paul DeGelder. Paul was uh, special forces in Australia. He was, uh, his story is uh, several years ago, he was training in Sydney Harbor with literally the opera house behind him. He's doing a, a counterterrorism exercise, swimming on his back. All of a sudden, a bull shark attacked him, uh, and he lost both his right leg and uh, most of his right arm. Well, Paul has since become one of the main faces of uh, Shark Week. You know, he's doing all the stuff. He's in the water. He's teaching people. Now they have celebrities. It was the 30th anniversary of Shark Week this year, in case you didn't know. And so he's teaching all these people. Well, this year they upped the ante even more, and they decided to do this thing with he and another special force, ex-special forces guy, to do a thing called shipwreck, which recreated a shipwreck in the ocean with them by themselves, no food, no water, and to see how long they could last, literally. And you watch it and you think exactly what you're thinking 
listening to this story, what are you doing? Now, I guess in some ways that Paul is thinking, okay, I've, only, I've already lost only half my limbs, maybe the other half, you know, and he was kind of funny about it. But he is in the water and you see the sharks, literally they're in the water 40, it shows the clock, like ding, 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 24 hours, 48 hours. I mean, they're in the water floating and all they have is like a net to hide themselves sometimes. They gave him that. The medic said, you have to have some sort of a, even man-made cage for you to get in in case you get mauled. These sharks were everywhere and they were all over them. And at some point you're watching the show and you say, okay, okay, let's just everything aside, common sense. How much of your love for sharks, which is basically shark week, comes into the reality of, of the danger that you're willing to take on? I mean, at some point, you, when do you say, I love sharks so much, I'm gonna sit in the water this long and see how long I last. I mean, th- does that sound right to you? When do you kind of this common sense kick in and go, these things eat people, they have for years. What's different about this show than the last one? You know what I'm saying? Like danger, love for sharks, know that they maul people. Like where does that meet? We just read a passage about a church that is struggling with this kind of thing. They are, Th- Th- Thyatira was probably one of the least known cities. It was not a very important city. It was not like a, a city like Nashville. You know, people wanting to move to Nashville. People in Thyatira, they're like, uh, you don't really move to Thyatira. You just work there. You just kind of live there. But the thing that, that, that's interesting about this is that these letters that we're looking at in Revelation are being written to churches. It's Jesus himself Jesus himself writing a letter to diagnose what is going on in a certain church. And for Thyatira, it was this. They had a great love. You even heard it. I commend to you your love and faith and service and patient endurance. But what they were lacking was discernment. They were really great at loving around them. But they were lacking incredible discernment of the danger that was lurking around them. They had no idea how to deal with it. And they weren't dealing with it well. And so Jesus is diagnosing them. And this is what's amazing about these letters. Why seven letters to these seven churches? It wasn't that Thyatira was more important as a church than any other church. But it is interesting that this is the longest letter to the church. That's probably one of the most least important in this list. And seven in Revelation was a number of completion. It was symbolizing that it wasn't just these seven churches that had issues. It was for us to say all of our churches have these issues. How does it apply to us? Revelation for many of you may stir up all sorts of things. Dragons, you know, things like weird conjuring images, right? But the point of Revelation is this. The point, if you want to help, I'm trying to say this to you every week to think about how do you read Revelation? You read it in this way. It is to stir your imagination of what the gospel already is. It's not writing anything new. Revelation doesn't mean it's new revelations of something new. It's actually revelation of an imagery of the real gospel, everything else in the Bible. It's almost like a kite floating in the sky. It's it's there. It's, It's letting your imagination kind of run. It's giving you these pictures to understand that, to try and put pictures and imagery on theology. But it's all, as a kite is, always tethered back to what is already in the scripture. 
And we don't, and oftentimes what we want to do is when. We ask the question, when is this going to happen? But that's not the, the question of, of Revelation. The question is who, not when. I love how Flannery O'Connor described the, her writing when someone asked her, why do you write the way you do? Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite writers. She's a Southern writer. You should read some of her short stories. Here's how she answered when they said, why do you write the way that you do? She said, you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. That is revelation. It is written in a way to shock us with the imagery of the real gospel. And this is why we get pictures of who, even who Jesus is here, so we can see how does Jesus diagnose his church, and how do we understand that? Well, he does it in two ways in this passage. He does it by showing us first that love must have discernment with it. Love always must have limitation and discernment. It must have some sort of filter to make sense, boundary. Love always must go with that. But discernment also, secondly, must lead to compassion. Discernment in and of itself. Love must have discernment and discernment must lead to compassion. And love that must have discernment, if you read this, <clears throat> it says in, in verse 19, I know your works. And this is how Jesus is. He, he diagnoses church. He commends his church. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceeded the first. He says even your latter works exceeded even the first. He commends them. He says you have great love. But, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. What's going on here is that Thyatira was a commercial trading center. It wasn't a real important city, but it, where it sat, it was a huge place of commerce and trade guilds. In fact, archaeology drew up all sorts of things about these specific trade guilds that were a part of Thyatira. Things like wool making, leather making, bakery, bronze making. This is why even in Acts chapter 16, we looked at a few weeks ago, Lydia, who's a famous person in Philippians uh, and in Philippi, is from Thyatira. She's a dyer of purple goods. This is one of the biggest things that they did there. But for one, many of these here, what they did was in those trade guilds, they would have them connected both economically and religiously. So not only would these be places where you would find, and many of these, we, we all kind of understand that. If you're an engineer here, you have an understanding with other engineers. If you're in medicine, you understand other, if you're in entertainment, you understand that as well. There are certain guilds that you're a part of, but to be a part of these in that time often were connected to religious feasts. And so in order to be a part of that culture economically, as well as socially, you needed to buy into these kind of trade guilds. And what was happening was, whether it was an actual person or what was going on, there was something that was being tolerated by a woman named Jezebel. The word doesn't mean there was an actual woman named Jezebel here, but that's actually drawing imagery all the way back to 1 Kings to an actual person who married King Ahab in 1 Kings and led Israel, the people of Israel lay, to worship idolatry. So what is being spoken of here is that there's something about in what they were doing in these trade guilds, they were tolerating idolatry and licentiousness. 
In order to be a part of the trade, in order to be a part of this, they didn't have discernment in that. They were just saying, okay, I'll be a part of this. Here's what it was like. Because if you were to decide that you didn't want to be a part of these certain trades, you needed to, you were literally ejecting yourself socially and economically from the entire society around you. So there was a great fear to, to compromise, to say, yeah, we, we are totally loving. And especially in this city that often changed hands, it was a very pluralistic city, a way for you to say, yeah, you know what? I'm willing to put up with this in order to be a part of this social and economic standard. And that's what was going on. And the question here is, is interesting. It's very quick and easy, is what were they willing to compromise? See, here's what was being said, that they're <clears throat> seducing, teaching and seducing my service to practice sexual immorality and food, eat food sacrificed to idols. What they would do is they would go into certain temples, oftentimes with their trade, and they would eat in certain temples and eat with food sacrificed to idols. And they would begin to tolerate and, and compromise their relationship with God in order to be a part of the social and economic fabric. The question here is, the, the application that runs is very simple. What is it for us that we are willing to compromise in order to be a part of the certain specific industry, dream that we have, whatever it may be, where is it that you say, I'm okay with fudging on this part of my relationship with Christ in order to have this in my life. I know that sounds very just rudimentary, but we all ask those questions. We're all every day saying, how much can I give on this? How much can I give on this in order to be a part of this economic dream for myself? What do I have to compromise about myself and what I believe in the good news of Jesus actually following him in order for me to be a part of this? It's the question we always ask. What does it mean, and we put it in these terms, what does it mean for us to be a Christian and interact with the culture? Some people have done this culture wars and fight against those things so hard that, that they decide we have to remove ourselves completely. But, Think about what they're doing. You, you don't remove yourself from work. The other side of that is, is just totally adhering to that. And you see that in this passage where they give in themselves to just be a part of it socially, economically, politically. And the word tolerate here is to put up with. It means that you're willing to, to take on other things in order to, you know, in order to live your life just cleanly in order to not have mess. But it was messy. It was messy then to believe in Jesus. It, should be me it is messy now. And it should interact with our lives. We should, in, in many ways, that we tolerate the things in our jobs, in our families, and around us in this city, that we put up with things. We're like, oh, well, that's, I know that's going on, but it doesn't really, maybe I can just kind of seclude myself in this way. How many times do we do that? That the church of Jesus is to impact us no matter where we are. Look, after World War II, in many of the towns and villages, and you can even look this up and see images of this, many of the towns and villages that surrounded the concentration camps, after the Allied forces came in and actually freed and, um, and, and, and took over, they would go to these towns and villages and actually have the people 
who knew what was going on walked through the towns and walked through the villages down to the concentration camps. And even in many cases had them help clean the facilities in which the concentration camps were going on. And oftentimes you read about it and they said that the, the common quote that the Allied forces realized from all these surrounding villagers and, and townspeople was, we knew what was going on, but we didn't want to know. You can see images of hands with handkerchiefs over their faces walking through the concentration camps. And the Allied forces wanted them to see what was really happening. Look, the, some of you may be going, how serious is this? This is serious, and here's why. Jesus takes his relationship with you seriously. There's a reason that the whole thing begins this way in verse 18. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Do you know why it begins with his characteristic and this phrase, Son of God? It's the only place in Revelation, the only place where Jesus actually is identified as the Son of God. Most other places, it's son of man. Here, they replace man with God, and that is astounding. It's wanting us to get the idea that Jesus doesn't tolerate other things that we are willing to have a relationship with in our lives. He takes his relationship with us seriously. His love has limits. This is why there's a cross. This is why there are limitations to it. Because he died. His blood isn't just thrown about. His blood is specific. It's applied for sin. And this is why there's even sexual imagery here. It talks about practice sexual immorality. Now maybe that was actually happening. It's very possible it could have been. But if you look from Genesis to Revelation, the common metaphor that God has with his people is sexuality. It's a marriage. And when he talks about us as people walking away from him at any moment, he talks about it as infidelity. That's the language he uses. It's very severe. It's very forceful because he, he cares that much. And he's not trying to make you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's trying to say, look how much I actually love you. That's the point of the letter, is to lean in. This is what's interesting. And the mark of this, the mark of discernment with connecting to love is this word here, repentance. He says that he, um, in verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 20, 21, there it is. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. And then later on it says, unless they repent of her works, that there are others that need to repent. There's a refusal to repent. And repentance for us conjures up probably a very religious guilt-filled image. But what repentance means is that we're willing to see that there are boundaries to love. It's just like any relationship you have. And here's one of the common themes I think is very interesting in our culture today, is that Everybody wants love to be this dominant metaphor, but everybody wants their rights. And where do those things come in contact? Who has the authority? How do we know we're loving one another well? It's this common inconsistency in our culture that happens over and over and over and over. 
Where is love and where's discernment? Where does it meet? Love has to have boundaries. It has to have discernment. Otherwise, you can't have relationship. No one can. And repentance is the mark of that. Repentance says, I see something different. And I need to turn towards it. Repentance actually is a word that means turn to. It actually means change a relation to. It means you have discernment. You're willing to to change your life for someone else. It's a moving away from things to a person. That's what repentance is. And most of the time, we think of it religiously as turning from bad things to good things. This is actually saying, if you look at the word, it means turning from bad and good things to Jesus. That's why he positions himself as the son of God. And notice his, here's what he says about himself, his character. He has eyes like a flame of fire that he searches the hearts and minds, verse 23. That there's this penetrating, he sees and he searches. Have you ever sat with somebody before and they really begin to probe your mind. Maybe you've done it in a therapeutic context. Maybe you've done it with a deep friendship, maybe a spouse, whoever that may be. But they really kind of get you and it's kind of unnerving. You find almost they're inside your head and maybe they even pull out phrases or things that you're thinking and put it into words for you. What this felt like was just uh, this, I think it's last week, Uh, Megan was home and heard a knock on the door and this man was at the door and he said, hey, I I used to live here. Would you mind if I take a look at the house? Which is kind of an odd thing to begin with. It was kind of overwhelming. Well, as he walked in the house, you know, there's there's, there's the vulnerability of this person, this stranger looking around your house. But the other thing that was so odd about it was just this man taking in our house and seeing how it just, it is nothing like what it was. Just the evaluation of everything. This was here, that wasn't there, this is over there. You know, like all of that evaluation. The seeing and searching of Jesus is this unnerving. It, it, it is not a matter of him even asking questions. Like when we sit with each other and we ask questions, hey, what have you done here? Where, where is this? And we get into each other. Jesus doesn't even have to do that. There is something so probing, so deep about his character that he gets into your heart and into your mind in a way he doesn't have to ask the question, he finds the answer. And he sees it. And it should drive us to repentance. Repentance is this, and it's not, look, here's the thing that talks about here. It talks about sexual sin here. And maybe that's the thing for you. Maybe that's the thing when you think of Jesus seeing and searching your mind and your life, that you go, I don't want anybody to know that. I can't believe he would even know that. Maybe there's something else in your life that when you think about Jesus seeing and searching these eyes of flame, that's, that's the imagery. That's the large startling figure that Flannery O'Connor is describing in her own writing. This is supposed to make us go like this. Oh my gosh, that you don't, you cannot look at them in the eyes you know those people, you, you look them in the eyes and you can't look again because you feel like they see right through you? That is the feeling it's to evoke in us because there's no other way to describe it. And what Jesus' eyes are doing is they're not penetrating you to show you how wrong you are necessarily and leave you in your guilt. 
Repentance isn't just a religious word to say, you're guilty and you're wrong. It's actually to say, you need to turn back to me. Jesus doesn't ask you to repent of those things that you think are unrepentable, just to leave them. It's not a, repentance isn't a spiritual diet. It's not where you look at, you, I gotta cut these things out of my life. How do I cut them out? It's actually more than that. It's actually Jesus coming in, searching and seeking and finding the places where that you must be loved, that he must come in and deal with. It's not a diet, it's a wholeness. It's your whole self being brought to him. That's repentance. And notice, there's an opportunity to repent here. For those people who have decided, in verse 22, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. That, that repentance, there's a, there's a chances to repent. Look, there's so many things in your life, and maybe it is that, that deepest thing that you think is a sexual sin. Maybe it's something else to you that you think is just so, how could I ever receive repentance for this? Those things, this is what Jesus is saying to the church, those things are damaging, but they're not irredeemable. You and I are incredibly damaged. The things that we have, the choices, the, the lack of discernment that we've made is damaging and destructive, but we are not irredeemable. Otherwise, why would he come to the church? And why would he have eyes aflame and a, and a character that searches and seeks? Wouldn't he rather just be a God that says, oh, I can't look at you. I can't come to you. He does the opposite. This is why discernment leads to compassion. Notice in this, in this passage that it talks about authority, talks about Jesus' authority set up. And this is why his discernment leads to compassion is the fact that this city sat right in between two major portions of Asia Minor. And over the years, this city changed hands. It was the easiest city to, to take over, easiest city to capture. They had no identity. It was always the first one to go. And so it changed hands politically and socially over and over. One minute they had a ruler, the next they had another one. One minute they were under the authority of one country, and the next another one. So they never understood real authority. And what does Jesus do? <clears throat> Jesus comes in to talk about what true authority is. He says, I am the only one. And this may scare many of you in this room. And it is oftentimes maybe the question in conversation we have with other people. Why does Christianity always claim this exclusive? It just seems so exclusive it seems like it's just so exclusive. But if you read this passage, what is the most exclusive here? Everything is claiming exclusivity. There, even if we talk about we want to be the most tolerant, most pluralistic, what, what we have to be tolerant, what our criteria is to be tolerant, is in itself exclusivity to allow people to have space. This is what it requires for you to be tolerant. Notice he does something here and he says, he says, the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, 
who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. There is this actual enlightenment that was being discussed in this city. An enlightenment that if you, if you learn this, if you learn this secret, you can live in both worlds. If you learn this one thing, you can have all success in trade and social economic life and social life and your religious life. And here's the danger of that. That discernment is not discernment at all. It doesn't lead to compassion. It leads to, a, 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 to slavery. It leads to that one secret thing. Hey, hear this. This is really important to understand. Anything that takes a characteristic of God or a part of the church or just parts of the Bible and makes everything about that one thing is dangerous. That is not discernment. In fact, that's what he's saying here. It creates the deep things of Satan. You know what he says opposite? He says, there's no secret to the gospel. There's no secret here. There's no entrance to the deeper things. Do you know what's beautiful about what we're doing this morning? This is the most inclusive thing. The discernment and authority of Christ is the most compassionate. It doesn't say, oh, sorry, you don't have the deeper things. It says, here I am. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. It is yours to take. Receive it. It's yours. And that's why it is the most wonderful authority to submit to. It is the most glorious authority to submit to. Because listen to what he says right after. It says, what some call the deep things of Satan. What does Jesus say? You would think Jesus would turn back and say, you've been turning the deep things of Satan. Don't worry about this. Here are the things you need to do. What does he say? He says, I do not lay on you any other burden. Jesus' authority is unlike any other. He doesn't put the burdens on you. And the question for you this morning is, is your life full of burden? Because if it is, you have to ask yourself the question, am I really in relationship with Jesus or is it Jesus and many other things? You may be missing discernment completely if it's not leading to compassion. If, it's le if your discernment is leading more and more and more to your furrowed brow and you're making sure you have everything lined up and the right things here and the right things there and I got the secret to life, I have my life down, you are missing the truth of discernment that leads to compassion. The most authoritative person in the entire universe says, I do not lay on you any other burden." He says, come to me. What is the words that Jesus said? Where is this coming from? Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and who are weary, and I will give you rest. That is what this church needed. That's what we need to know. What are the burdens you're putting on yourself to make yourself in? Look, th 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 here's what's incredible about what Jesus brings to the church of Thyatira and to us. He brings authority and discernment and true compassion. There's no other authority in all of history who has done what we're about to do at this table. No one. Think about this. They were tossed around 
back and forth politically, socially, by the government, different government, every other time. What Jesus gives them is this. He says, I am your authority and my feet are of burnished bronze. Do you know why he says that? Because one of the number one trades of Thyatira was bronze. And his feet will never move. His character is unmovable. His authority does not get tossed about. And you know what he says at the end? It's so beautiful. And it's something that we'd fly by. He says, and I will give him the morning star in verse 28. Do you know what the morning star is? It makes it sound like he's going to give us this just one star. If you read Revelation and you read the Old Testament, remember that kite is tethered back. The morning star is Jesus himself. What authority actually gives himself in body and blood? You know how you come to this table? This is not a secret table. This is a table of authority because there is someone's body and blood that was given for it. It is exclusive in the fact that it is his body and it is his blood and he is the son of God. But you know what's glorious about it? It's not secret. He says, come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy laden. All he asks for you is not any other burden. This is not a table of burdens. It's for you to come. If you're here this morning, I just want to say this. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, or maybe you're like, this authority thing, truth, love, I I don't know how I mix those. Look, examine. Don't come just take this table because we're all doing it. That would be another burden. Come to this table because he is the authority and the most compassionate Because no other authority gives his actual body and blood for you to come and take so that you may be a part of his body. Let's stand together now.